Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, it is another opera podcast, uh, but this one is really about the biography of a famous singer specifically. We won't get too deep into opera terminology or anything on this one. Uh, and this was suggested on Twitter, and I, as often happens to us when someone suggests something on social, if we don't write down right then who suggested it, it gets lost to the ages because it becomes very impossible to search. So I apologize to the person that suggested her. I do not remember your name. But it made me excited because not only did it involve research of a diva in the traditional sense of the word diva, like a premier opera talent, uh, I also get to research a French chef, though his part of the story is fairly brief, but that made it exciting to me. So we're talking today about Dame Nellie Melba, and this is actually going to be a two-parter because she's one of those people that, like, once you really dig into her biography, she did so many things, and her career was so long, and she's just really fascinating. She was basically the equivalent of a modern-day megastar in her time. She was confident. She was smart. She was talented. She was beloved by the people of her home country, Australia. But she was also an international star. She was a featured performer on stages throughout the world. She was basically a worldwide phenomenon in terms of singing. And she was sometimes criticized during her career as coming across as cold as a singer rather than being passionate. But uh, many others considered her voice to be one of ultimate purity and clarity. She really focused a lot on technique. But regardless of where anybody stood on it, for four decades, she really commanded the opera scene. And she drew crowds in a, a career that was nothing short of globetrotting. So that's who we're talking about today. Nellie was born Helen Porter Mitchell on May 19th, 1861, near Melbourne, Australia. Her father, David Mitchell, was a building contractor and an entrepreneur of some renown, and he supported Australia's eight-hour workday movement in the mid-1850s. David and his wife, Isabella Ann Dow Mitchell, had ten children, all told. That's a lot of kids. Uh, and their household was full of music. The Mitchells loved it. David sang in the choir at the Scots Church. He also played violin, though just casually at home. He wasn't like a a concert violinist. And Isabella played several instruments, and she made it a priority to teach all of their children music. That means that Nellie did start singing at a very young age. She appeared at the Richmond Public Hall when she was just six, and she eventually learned to play the piano with great skill. But she was a little bit of a tomboy, and she wasn't considered a musical wunderkind by any means. Her humming, of all things, was recognized as being quite lovely, and she would hum throughout her life, eventually as a vocal exercise rather than a way to make her own music. And in addition to the music that her mother taught her, Nellie also got a more general academic education. Uh, she was taught additional subjects by her aunts. And then she also attended boarding school and later Presbyterian Ladies College. And it was in college that Nellie truly blossomed and began more seriously studying and excelling in music, elocution and painting. Nellie finished school in 1880, although sadly it was not a time of celebration. Her mother and one of her sisters had both died. Charles moved the family to Mackay in Queensland, where he had purchased a sugar mill, thinking that a new environment might really help everybody deal with their grief. On December 22nd of 1882, so at the age of 21, Nellie married Charles Nesbitt Armstrong. And she had met him the previous year after the family had moved. He was both rugged and a gentleman, and he was three years older than Nellie. 
But married life in McKay was really difficult for Nellie to settle into. The couple had a son, George, in October of 1883, but this didn't fix anything. She didn't feel any real happiness. Uh, she certainly cared for her son, but she didn't feel fulfilled, and it didn't make their marriage very happy. Charles is also alleged to have been violent with Nellie. And just a few months after George was born, Nellie left on January 19th of 1884. After separating from Charles, Nellie moved to Melbourne to make a fresh start and pursue a career in singing. The marriage didn't end there, though. Charles's and Nellie's lives would stay connected for some time, and we'll just be coming back to that in a little bit. So in Melbourne, she took vocal lessons from Pietro Cecchi, an accomplished opera singer in his own right. And Cecchi also had a fascinating life in his own right. He was born in Rome, and he first worked as an architect under Pope Pius IX. And then he left his architecture career during the 1948 Italian revolutionary unrest, and that's when he turned to opera. He would appear on stages all over the world during his career, including uh, on the stage of the previous podcast topic, La Scala. The relationship between Nellie and Checky would grow contentious over the years. But at the beginning, he really thought she was destined to be a star and that her voice would captivate audiences everywhere. With guidance from a teacher with that kind of faith in her talent, Nellie focused exclusively on developing her skills. And that dedication really paid off. Uh, when she made her Australian singing debut at the Melbourne Town Hall on May 17th of 1884, Audiences fell in love with her, and critics raved over her, just as Checky had expected. This really launched Nellie's career as a performer, and she did extremely well for herself financially right out of the gate. We're going to talk more about the trajectory of Nellie's early career in just a moment, but first we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors. So just shy of two years after Nellie made her Melbourne debut, she felt ready to expand her audience. And so in early 1886, her father, David Mitchell, was sent as a commissioner to the Indian and Colonial Exhibition in London. And Nellie took advantage of this trip's timing to accompany him and feel out her European performing options. She loved London instantly, but it didn't exactly love her back. She gave one small performance and it uh, wasn't a terrible outing, but nobody was writing rave reviews about it. There was no standing up and cheering by any means. She met with composer Sir Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, but he wasn't really wowed with her either. He told her to just keep practicing and that if she did so and improved enough, he might give her a small role in an upcoming production. So you might think that that would be a terrible downer to kind of get told after you have been told you're great so many times. Eh, you're okay. Uh, but this lukewarm experience in London, in fact, did not deter Nellie at all. She had additional plans. Through the wife of the Austro-Hungarian consul to Melbourne, Nellie had arranged a meeting in Paris with German singer and teacher Mathilde Marchese. And Nellie sang for Marchese. This audience of one was far more impressed than the people of London had been. Marchese felt that uh, Checky had managed to give Nellie's voice strength and endurance, but he hadn't really given her the tools to develop it beyond that. So part of the education that Nellie received under Marchese had nothing to do with music and everything to do with cultivating a persona and her social connections. The younger woman was booked to sing in salons and private events so that she could work on her social graces and meet composers and other people who were connected to Europe's music scene. 
And Marchese eventually took on a very motherly role in Nellie's life. And in fact, Nellie often referred to her as mother in their correspondence. And the mentor also encouraged her student to take a stage name because all of this time Nellie had been appearing as Nellie Armstrong. Nellie's husband, Charles Armstrong, had actually traveled with her to Europe, but their marriage was never really stable. Just the same, Charles resisted the idea of getting a divorce. He joined the military. George stayed with Nellie, and Charles would visit his wife and his son from time to time. It kind of reminds me of, uh, have you ever known a couple where someone takes a job far away to try to keep the marriage together because that way they're not grating against each other all the time? It's, it seems like that's what was in play here. <laughs> I actually know some people who have taken jobs far away uh, purporting that that was just how it worked out. And I've always had the seed of wondering if that was what was really going on. I have known people that work and sep- live in separate places just because of logistics, but I definitely have known a few where they're like, we love each other, but when we're together, we make each other crazy. So if we can limit that and only have good times together, it works out. So I think that may have been part of the the impetus for George, uh, for Charles to join the military. On October 13th of 1887, Nellie made her debut as an opera singer in Brussels. Now, we've mentioned before that he, she had made singing debuts, but this is really the first time that she was focusing on opera. Uh, and in this, she starred in Verdi's Rigoletto as Gilda, the daughter of the title character. And this appearance at the Théâtre Royal de la Monnaie marked the first time she appeared under what would become her known stage name of Nellie Melba. And if you're wondering where Melba came from as a name, it was in honor of her home city, Melbourne. The night of that debut, Charles and Nellie had a huge fight. And finally, after just dragging things out, this ended their tumultuous five-year marriage in terms of their relationship with each other. But they were still legally married for several more years after that. Rigoletto, and specifically Nellie in it, uh, was such a success that she soon had other high-profile roles, including parts in La Traviata and Lucha de l'Amour, although Gustave Mahler remarked after her La Traviata performance that he would rather listen to a clarinet. Seven months after her operatic debut, she returned to London to perform Lucha at Covent Garden. But though she was celebrated elsewhere, London still had not warmed to Nellie, even under a new name. She made a respectable showing, but she just couldn't seem to break into the London opera scene as a star, and she was only offered smaller parts than she had been playing elsewhere. Melba had no interest in stepping down to supporting roles after having been the featured performer. So she said goodbye to London and headed back to Brussels. She soon appeared as Ophelia in Hamlet, which opened in Paris on May 8, 1889. She once again got rave reviews. But during this time, things were in motion to try to bring her back to London once more. Yeah, so while London audiences had not really raved over Nellie Melba as a whole, she did gain some admirers in her appearances there. And one of these was Gladys de Grey, wife of Earl de Grey, Frederick Robinson. And Lady de Grey was a patron of the arts. Uh, she was also close friends with Oscar Wilde. And after Nellie left London for the second time, Lady de Grey wrote to the singer, and she really asked her and pled with her to please return to England to sing once again. Nellie was moved by DeGray's letter, and she did agree to appear again on the London stage, but she was also committed to her Ophelia role already at this point. So her return to Covent Garden had to wait until she had wrapped up her Paris production. So when she did wrap that up and finally sing again at Covent Garden, it was on June 15th of 1889, and Nellie appeared in Romeo and Juliet in the the starring role. 
So following the idiom of the third time's the charm, this appearance in London was what Nellie Melba would later refer to as, quote, the great night that marked the start of her success with English audiences. It was also the beginning of a long relationship with Covent Garden. While there had been reluctance to book her there initially, she eventually was one of the very few performers to have a permanent private dressing room at the theater for decades. Nellie was so happy in London from that point on that she purchased a home in Great Cumberland Place and then had it remodeled to look like Versailles. She lived there for more than two decades. Uh, so we are about to get to the food part and talk about the chef that I referenced at the top of the episode. But before we do, let's have a brief word from one of our sponsors. Now on to the part I wondered about as soon as Holly gave me this outline, which is the food part. Early on in her time in London, Nellie Melba made the acquaintance of Auguste Escoffier, who would come to be known as the King of Chefs. When you think of French haute cuisine, you've probably got a good sense of the food aesthetic that he really made famous. He would concoct these uh, these really lavish 11-course meals, and his kitchen always had to have a skilled saucier uh, in residence. He favored really seasonal ingredients, and his work in streamlining professional kitchens became the industry standard of organization. He ran several restaurants in London during the 1890s and 1900s. And Nellie loved those restaurants. She dined in Escoffier's establishments with regularity. And according to legend, at one point, she sent the chef tickets to one of her performances, which was a staging of Wagner's Lohengrin. And in this particular production, one of the set pieces was a large, beautiful swan-shaped boat. So moved was Escoffier by the performance that when Nelly appeared in his restaurant the next day, he created a custom dish for her. It featured fresh peaches over ice cream with an ice carving of a swan, and it was served in a silver dish. He called his creation Peshu Signe, which is peaches with swan. The dish evolved, though, and by the time Escoffier featured it on the menu at the London Ritz-Carlton, he added a raspberry puree and changed the name to Pesh Melba. Yes, or Peach Melba, as we often call it uh, in the United States. But that is not the only food item that Escoffier named for the diva. The story goes that in 1897, while Nellie Melba was dining in one of Escoffier's restaurants, she told the chef that the bread that she had been served was much too thick, allegedly because she was trying to maintain her figure. And there had always been this sort of issue uh, surrounding her in terms of the public eye that she was a little too heavy to play some of the ingenue roles that she was in. So she was probably very conscious of her figure. But to solve this problem and appease the singer while still keeping bread in the meal, uh, Escoffier is said to have gone to the kitchen and cut the thinnest possible slice of bread he could before he then toasted it. And allegedly, this is how Melba Toast was born. And that was the question I wondered when you gave me this outline. <laughs> We mentioned Nellie's private dressing room at Covent Garden a little bit ago. And while that may sound like quite a perk, it was the least of the benefits and power that she enjoyed during her time there. She had the good fortune to be there at the same time that the theater was flourishing. It had these enormous productions and huge casts that drew enormous crowds. And Nellie was celebrated and she rubbed elbows with high society. She used her social power to shut down any rivals that dared to challenge her status. Uh, and in my head, as I was working on this and reading about ways she would uh, deal with rivals, and we'll talk about another one of them later, uh, I couldn't help but think of the movie Showgirls, which is a wondrous and bad thing. 
Uh, but so Nellie and Lady DeGray were great friends, and DeGray opened a lot of society doors for the singer. So Nellie sang in command performances before royalty throughout the world, and she achieved a level of fame that ensured that she was basically mobbed wherever she traveled. Like, I'm not kidding when I say international superstar. On the personal front, Nellie had met Philippe, Duke of Orléans, in 1890. He was the heir of the Bourbon claimant to the throne of France, and the pair became what would become a scandalous and damaging relationship. Because the two of them were not at all careful about being seen together in public, there were reports of the two of them being spotted as a couple from London, Paris, Brussels, St. Petersburg, and more. They were downright brazen about their their affair, and it became news. Keep in mind that Nellie was still married to Charles at this point, although they really didn't have any real contact with one another. But once her romance with the Duke of Orléans became public knowledge, in part because he was clearly following her on her performance tours, uh, Charles finally filed for divorce. And at this point, he used this news item to accuse Nellie of adultery. There was also legal action against Philippe in the mix. So this legal claim, though, sputtered out uh, for reasons which have never been made entirely clear. There has been a lot of speculation by various historians that Charles was pressured to drop his suit due to the high profile nature of Nellie's paramour. Like he may have been getting some pressure from people connected to the French royal lineage. And as for Philippe, he had been engaged to Princess Marguerite of Orléans, which is his cousin. But that engagement was called off amid all this scandal. As the legal issues were being done away with in whatever mysterious way that would happen, it left the Duke to travel the world. But he and Nellie never really rekindled their romance. And that's actually where where we're going to cliffhang this one, uh, because it is sort of a a pause moment in her life. Uh, And the next time around, we are going to talk more about her career and kind of the latter half of it and, and how she developed and stayed very modern and current and much beloved. But that's part one of Dame Nellie Melba. She hasn't been made Dame yet at this point in the story, but she will be. (laughs) That's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's coming. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. People may have noticed, and I've mentioned before, that I am trying to go through some of our our physical mail because we get so much of it. Uh, And I really appreciate that people make the effort to send something through the mail. So I have three postcards from various listeners. One is from our listener, Sarah. She says, hello from St. Petersburg. I realize now that I probably should have bought a larger card. I'm currently interning at the U.S. consulate here, listening to you two during my lunch breaks. I've been listening for the past year or so and just want to say that I love the podcast. It's really no wonder listeners send you postcards from around the world. Sorry my ti- for my tiny handwriting. Hopefully you can read it. Uh, yeah, we absolutely could. And it's a lovely black and white photograph from St. Petersburg. It's so gorgeous. Uh, so thank you so much, Sarah, for sending that. And the next two are both from, uh, military connected people. The first is from Emily, who is a wife of a, a U.S. Navy service member stationed in Italy. She's a longtime listener of the show. Uh, and she recently visited Bavaria and toured, uh, Schloss Neuschwanstein which is absolutely gorgeous and was talked about uh, in an episode before Tracy and I came on the show, but I'm a big fan of Mad King Ludwig. Uh, so thank you, Emily, and thank you also for uh, your part in helping to keep our troops uh, happy. I know being stationed overseas can sometimes be really draining, but I'm hoping you're enjoying it. The next one is also uh, from a military gent. It is from our listener, Steve, who is on board the USS Harry S. Truman. Uh, and he 
says he loves the show and he has been uh, touring about. He just left Split and learned so much history, especially the nearby towns of Solin and I think it's Trogir. I'm so sorry, I'm probably butchering that. He said he bought a cravat and toured the Diocletian Palace. Thanks for podcasting so I can listen underway. Thank you for your service. We super appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you shared this with us. It's, again, a gorgeous postcard. I love postcards so much. And it's just cool to me to know that uh, our listeners are out there actually kind of living some fun history adventures of their own. So thank you to the three of them for sharing those with us. Uh, if you would like to email us, you can do so at historypodcast at com. We're also on facebook.com slash history, and on Twitter at history on at Pinterest. Uh, at Pinterest.com slash history at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at history. If you are uh, curious to learn a little bit more about sort of topics related to what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works, type in the word opera. One of the articles that will come up is how the Metropolitan Opera works, so you'll get a good sense of that. Uh, if you would like to visit us online, you can do so at MissedInHistory.com, where all of our show notes are for any of the episodes that have included... Tracy and myself as hosts, or uh, we also have an archive of all of the episodes from the beginning with previous hosts, but there aren't show notes for all of those. Just for the ones in the Tracy and Holly era. So, we encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 